0: Внимание говорит и показывает Москва.
1: Фейдры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин никто не слушал. Послушайте Привет. Это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу, а сотрудники
2: безопасности гоном вас с новым веком. Ukraine is in the midst of its third and most difficult revolution since independence. Back in 1994, Ukraine became the first post-Soviet republic to pull off a peaceful and democratic transfer of power. This was revolutionary at the time, and it set the precedent that elections in Ukraine matter and that they are free and fair. In 2003 and 2004, when the Donbass oligarchs sought to monopolize power by fixing an election, both civil society and Ukraine's other oligarchic structures successfully pushed back. If nothing else, the Orange Revolution assured that at the very least, Ukraine would have oligarchic pluralism. But in 2013 2014, the Euromaidan Revolution, the revolution of dignity, Ukrainian civil society took to the streets to demand that Ukraine move beyond oligarchic pluralism into real pluralism and take its place in Europe. And the sound that you have been hearing, that turbulence we've all been witnessing ever since, is indicative of the difficulty of that transition of taming the oligarchs and fully establishing the rule of law it is the most difficult of the three revolutions ukraine has experienced over the past three decades and we are right in the middle of it Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from an undisclosed location is former Ukrainian Prime Minister Oleksii Huncharuk, the youngest person ever to serve in that office these days Alexi is a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council welcome to the podcast Alexia. it's truly an honor to have you on Hi,
1: thank you for the invitation. Uh, Thank uh, you for accepting. To be a couple of these
2: great conversations. Yeah, no, I I look forward to a great conversation with you. And also joining us from Silver Spring, Maryland, is Melinda Herring, Deputy Director at the Atlanta Council's Eurasia Center and a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Welcome back to the podcast, Melinda. It's been too long.
0: Thanks a lot, Brian. Glad to be here and always love to chat with Alexei. Hopefully, I'll get a chance to get awarded. Sure you get the word in. So But I wanted to start, I mean,
2: the news gods have been fortunate to us this week. Um, This week, the Verkhovna Rada, the Ukrainian parliament, passed legislation restoring the powers of the country's anti-corruption agency, the NAZK in the Ukrainian acronym, which was formed in 2016 as part of the post-Euromaidan reforms. In a highly controversial ruling back in October, Ukraine's constitutional court stripped the NAZK of its powers. The ruling struck down a compulsory asset register for public servants and removed some of the NAZK's most essential powers, including the right to check the accuracy of information and declarations from officials, as well as to carry out inspections of state agencies. Free public access to officials' declarations was also made illegal. Incidentally, that lawsuit was filed by 47 pro-Russian lawmakers in the Ukrainian parliament, including Viktor Medvedchuk, a well-known crony of Russia. Russian President Vladimir Putin, which makes the entire thing suspicious from the start. I've long viewed the fight over the anti-corruption agency and other post euromaidan reform structures as sort of a microcosm of the struggle. To move Ukraine from the oligarchic pluralism that existed before to real pluralism, something that's essential for Ukraine to take its place in Europe. I've also viewed it as a key national security issue, as these oligarchic structures in Ukraine, as much as the kinetic war in the East, have long seen as a vector of malign Russian influence in that country. Alexei, as prime minister, you were on the front lines in that battle. How do you view the struggle over the anti-corruption agency right now and the broader effort to rein in Ukraine's oligarchs? What's been done? What needs to be done? Is the glass half empty? Is the glass half full? How do you see this? Thank you very much for this very
1: uh, interesting uh, question. I would start from maybe uh, description of general context, because uh, this case uh, with Nazikai is only the one, uh, like very small, very visible, but still uh, it's only one episode uh, in uh, the whole picture. So a couple of years ago, after the revolution of dignity, Ukraine made some progress in reform, achieved thanks to a new generation of politicians and civil servants and strong civil society. So it was some progress after the Revolution of Dignity. However, the progress were not enough to change the country because all politicians used all practices and schemes with oligarchs and pro-Russian forces. So Ukrainian people wanted real changes, and that's why actually President Zelensky was elected. So you should understand that election of President Zelensky is a result of a people's, who is not to have oligarch influence in the Ukrainian political system. So oligarch's influence is the reason why Zelensky became president because people wanted to shift all political system. They expected that some you guys without the bad political experience or uh, with the close connections to the oligarchs to the all these practices and all this corrupted system uh, will change the country. And that's why after the revolution of President Zelensky elections, the level of oligarch's influence was, was decreased because we were the first government without any oligarch influence on us. And from the start, a couple of first months, President Zelensky showed his intentions and he is going to do a real steps to fight corruption and to fight uh, oligarch's influence. For example, uh, so new anti-corruption uh, court was established, in some of the first months of uh, President Zelensky's term. But oligarchs now is trying to raise their influence through the corruption. So they're trying to pay salaries, the bribes to the MPs, to the judges, and to the judges of constitutional court, for example, if you're speaking about this case. And it means that all practices and the oligarchs influence in Ukraine is still in the place. And this episode with constitutional court, with Nazika, show us very clearly that oligarchs using all these corruption practice and corruption schemes are still in the place. Mm-hmm. And my general description and my general understanding that their influence now is raising. And United States and maybe Biden's administration should understand that now the team of Zelensky, he chose to work to cooperate with some of them. Uh, not to have a, a struggle, not to have a war with them. And this is very strong decisions all the president and his team made. So in general, President Zelensky built his landslide victory on promising to get rid of corruption and the localization. And the level playing field was one of his main ideas. Uh, that's brought me to, to lead this government. But all this idea already failed and Kremlin's puppets and uh, oligarchs have made a huge effort to take control over the all-state process. And not only this case uh, about Nazikov, but some political appointments, some ministries in the existing government, uh, some uh, appointments in regional policy show us that the oligarchs' influence in Ukraine, it's a pity, but
2: the fact the influence of uh, oligarchs in Ukraine are rising now. I want to bring Melinda into the conversation here because, Melinda, you've written about all of this over the years. And, in fact, back in April 2019, I actually just looked this up. You came on the podcast in the aftermath of Volodymyr Zelensky's victory in the presidential election. And if my memory serves me correctly, we were both at the time cautiously optimistic about his ability to reign in the oligarchs and his ability to handle the Russians, which kind of went against conventional wisdom at the time. There was a lot of hysterics at the time and fears that he was not up to the job, that the Russians were going to run roughshod over him. How do you see this now? Are the oligarchs less successful under Zelensky?
0: Brian, I'm not afraid to eat humble pie. I was, <laughs> I was wrong last year and I was too optimistic. I think there were good reasons to be optimistic. Uh, Zelensky came into office with his own money. He was new to the game. He didn't really seem to owe anyone any favors, but he did have deep links to Kolomoisky. And there, yes. maybe I should have been a lot more pessimistic. Those And we've seen in the last year, those links have only maybe gotten deeper. A lot of people think that Kolomoisky was involved in getting rid of most of the reform-minded government that Mr. Han presided over and that his influence has only gone up in the last year and other oligarchs influence has only gone down. So again, I'm not afraid to eat humble pie. Alexei has said that Zelensky changed and I I think that's an interesting argument. Zelensky had no experience, he came into office, he promised to make Ukraine rich, to end corruption and in the war. And those are really big promises and they're very inspiring. And the Ukrainian public, as Alexei said, Needed to hear that they wanted something after you know five years of Poroshenko, where he did a little bit and then he dragged his feet on a lot of really big reforms, uh, and he didn't he didn't do the things he promised. So Zelensky's rhetoric, you know, it, it was enough to get seventy three percent of the vote. It convinced me to give him a shot, and most of the Western experts. But you know what? I will say he hasn't lived up to it, obviously. But I I want to defend him a little bit and say the things that he promised to do are really, really hard. And they're not things that you can do quickly. But has he made progress on corruption? Absolutely not. Uh, And to summarize what happened with the National Anti Corruption Bureau so, two days ago, on December 15th, the Parliament voted to restore the powers of the National Anti Corruption Bureau. That's good. It's not enough, though. We're looking at a ping pong situation, Brian. So, this Bureau can now do what it needs to do, but we still have a corrupt constitutional court. 11 of 18 judges there are under the obvious external influence, and that's a nice way of saying they're corrupt. So look, the constitutional court can just go after the National Anti-Corruption Bureau again. Until the court is changed, there's no reason to be celebrating.
2: Alexei, how about that? I mean, I, I was a witness and it's been recorded. Melinda was very, very, very optimistic about Zelensky back in April 2019 when he was elected. And this seems to fit a pattern that as a longtime observer of Ukrainian affairs, I mean, I've seen this movie before. Yeah. Uh, we had high hopes for Viktor Yushenko, and those hopes were dashed. We had and I had really high hopes for Petro Poroshenko because I understood what was going on in 2013 and 2014. I'm thinking it's time for Ukraine to move beyond oligarchic pluralism. Who better to do that than an oligarch? Right? Who better to kind of spearhead that program, if he is sincere, than somebody like Petro Poroshenko? But he's proved unwilling or incapable of doing it. And we seem to be seeing the same movie again with Zelensky or Mr. Correct me if I'm wrong, Alexei. Feel free to make me be optimistic because I want to be optimistic. I'm an optimist too.
1: And I was very optimistic about Zelensky but I was much more optimistic about Zelensky than about Poroshenko, because Zelensky, he is not an oligarch himself. And Poroshenko was an oligarch himself, and we knew this fact about him. And I think that you are in, one of the Biden's actual uh, visit to Ukraine, he said that Ukraine's leaders proved incapable of delivering on the promised democratic revolution. We saw reforms put in place only to be crawled back. We bright flame of hope in Ukraine, snuffed out uh, the like, poison of corruption and kleptocracy. And all these words of Mr. Biden are still irrelevant. And what's interesting that all these people who failed reforms after the first revolution of Orange Revolution, Poroshenko, Yatsinou, all these people came to the power after the second revolution, after the evolution of dignity, and failed all these reforms again. And behind all these people were oligarchs. So we had the new faces, more or less, but all these faces, almost all these faces, were the puppets of oligarchs. So oligarchs are still the same. So the sense, the core base of our political system remains the same. And that's main problem. And Zelensky looked like the chance to change all this oligarch system because he won the elections Okay, with the support of some oligarchs, with the support of some oligarchs. But with support far of Colom- know, With Kolomoisky's support, not just oligarchs, a super oligarch. With, with Kolomoisky, some people, I don't know, like Avakov helped him. So he had the support from a lot of people. But what's important, as far as I know, he had no any clear obligation over the oligarch. And if you will look into our government, first of all, as an example, in our government we had no any single minister with like with, with oligarch background and some with some obligations
2: in front of uh, the oligarch. And Except Ivakov. Melinda wanted to jump in here. I know you. There's something you wanted to, to interject here. Come on in, Melinda.
0: Except Ivakov. And I, I guess I'll say the counter to that is, yeah, you had a really good government. But what did you guys actually accomplish? You and the Rada pushed through a huge amount of legislation. A lot of it was sort of small and good, um, but you know the, the big things that were passed through weren't that great. Land reform is not that the great of a bill. Yeah, it's good. It passed, but I, I can make the argument you didn't have enough time, uh, and I think that's a fair argument in your defense. But what what are the great achievements?
1: Oh, uh, look, it's not a defense. It's a truth that we had no enough time to show some real results, but a lot of real things was already done. For example, uh, we closed all gambling, illegal gambling, like points and these places. We said dark and with dirty money, with dirty cash, and so on and so forth. We prepared and pointed honest and professional management into state property fund, for example, and launch the big privatization. So I agree that it's not enough. It's impossible for six months to finish all very important reforms. But in all directions, in almost all ministers, we launched very ambitious and very so hard in Ukraine circumstances, reforms agenda. And some results was already established. So for example, Unbundling of naftogaz is very complicated to form. So it's a transformation of a big gas. We succeed with a uh, gas transportation contract between Russia, uh, European Union, uh, and Ukraine under the pressure of Russian propaganda and Russian agents uh, and opposition. And a lot of uh, things in, and if you're speaking about, for example, some uh, mineral resources, uh, some uh, corruption in this sphere, in mining, uh, we succeed with uh, this. And now you can see the professional and honest uh, management uh, in the, this agency, uh, state agency, Ukrainian state agency uh, responsible for permits and licenses of uh, this like, mining uh, with oil and gas and all this uh, industry. same situation uh, with the gas distribution we had uh, very dark and dirty uh, money with dirty cash uh, a huge uh, part of uh, shadow market and uh, we succeed with it uh, in very short period of time so we have a lot a number of already visible and important results for our reforms but you're absolutely right six months, it's not enough to show something. But it's not the case, actually. It's not about our government. Our government was only one element of uh, the system. The main achievement, from my point of view, of early Zelensky, uh, like, months, uh, only early Zelensky period, it was the government without any uh, oligarch uh, influence. The absolutely opposite situation. And that's why, actually, cases like in uh, Wysnazeka And uh, with some uh, appointments to the government, with some uh, corruption scandals, with general prosecution office involved. That's why we have all this
2: uh, range of corruption scandals. I want to, I want to drill down a little bit into some of this now, because when okay. and Melinda, you brought up the issue of Ihor Kolomoisky, which is actually pretty, pretty central to a lot of this. I've been kind of watching the Kolomoisky factor throughout. And in the early on, there was concerned that Zelensky was an instrument of Kolomoisky early on. He did take some some actions that showed that not to be the case. Uh, didn't get he didn't get Privat Bank back, for example. But there was also evidence late last year that there was a break between Zelensky and Kolomoisky. His MPs in the Rada were voting against uh, Zelensky, and this was kind of visible. And then there were those very weird pro-Russian remarks that, Kolomoisky made uh, in the New York Times back in November that raised a lot of eyebrows. And now it seems that I I don't know how to interpret the situation right now. Did Kolomoisky basically threaten the the government that he would withdraw his support and now he's getting more of what he wants? How do we see the relationship between Kolomoisky and the authorities, number one, and number two, I mean, Kolomoisky was historically seen as an anti-Russian oligarch. But lately I'm beginning to worry about that, specifically after his comments in the New York Times late last year that raised a lot of eyebrows, including my own. And I'm concerned also about oligarchs as a vector of Russian influence. Because I think this is just as dangerous to Ukraine as the war in the East in the long term. I guess Melinda, why don't you take that first and then we'll go to Alexei for his reaction?
0: Okay. I- I'm gonna give you a-, a one-sentence summary and then Alexei gets to unpack it. So in general. The perception is that Kolomoisky is up, he's the big dog, and that he has a strong relationship with the president. He's involved in giving advice on who to sack and who to keep. We know that he wanted to get rid of the national bank chairman, who is perceived as being very clean and very good. His name is Smalley. He was forced to resign in July. A majority of the board also was forced out We know that also the deputy there, Katrina Aroshkova, was also forced out. This is one of the major demands of the IMF. And we know that Kolomoisky was pushing and pushing and pushing on this. I don't know if you saw the picture, Brian, though, of the paid protesters outside of Smalley's home. They had a coffin and they had some pretty nasty things to say. Mm -hmm. And those were obviously, you know, stunts being pushed from Kolomoisky. We know that Kolomoisky, though, I think it's important to say that his legal pressure on him right? There's cases against him here in the United States. And I, I think it's safe to say that when President Biden is, comes into office, there's probably going to be some DOJ charges against him. There's a lot of rumors that are swirling about that, but I think Kolomoisky knows that his, his days are numbered. So he'll, he'll say whatever it takes to throw people off. So yes, in general, he's been perceived as being pro-Ukrainian, but you know, with him, all bets are on the table.
2: Right, so you wouldn't rule out him turning to the Russians if things got dicey with the Ukrainians or with the West? I think
0: he's a realist. He'll do whatever it takes.
2: Okay. Alexei, your
1: thoughts on that? First of all, I don't think that Zelensky is a puppet of Kolomoisky, but Kolomoisky is much more experienced and capable uh, in all these uh, political games. And uh, Kolomoisky is a gamer. And Kolomoisky is trying to play uh, games uh, with Zelensky. Uh, so, for example, today, m- most of the people of MPs connected to Kolomoisky supported the proposition uh, of uh, Mr. Swingali and Mr. Zelensky to the new minister's appointments uh, into uh, the government. So it's, it's like today's experience. It shows that sometimes... Kolomoisky supports some decisions. and sometimes he's an opposite. He has some uh, opposition in some uh, decisions. So he is playing. his general game is uh, to create chaos and uh, to destroy the trust between Ukraine and international uh, part- international organizations, uh, international partners of Ukraine. because and actually that's why his words, his rhetoric, is similar as Russians, as Kremlin, mm-hmm. because Kremlin, the goal, the main goal of uh, Kremlin is to create mass and uh, chaos mm-hmm. in Ukraine, to undermine the state institutions and to destroy uh, the trust between inside the team, inside the presidential team, and with uh, Ukraine and uh, international uh, institutions. And the same goals uh, Kolomoisky has the same goal. That's why actually sometimes it looks like Kolomoisky playing with the Russian. but I believe that in real life it's only about the similar interests uh, in some mm. short period of time. Kolomoisky, I don't think that there is uh, some strong alliance between Kolomoisky and Zelensky, but I believe that sometimes uh, Zelensky wanted to uh, like, live in peace with Kolomoisky and he's, he's saying that it's possible to have some like some successful negotiations uh, with him, but I think he's wrong. And in the end of the day, Kalamoski will uh, betray him and will uh, try to undermine his actually authority and his capacity in the guard because Kalamoski needs weak president, not strong president. Kalamoski uh, wants to create the situation when Zelensky will need him, you know. That's the general, I believe, the general idea of all this uh, Kolomoisky's game. And I don't think that you can defend all this game only analyzing some concrete
2: episode or even a number of episodes. Mm -hmm. It's much broader picture. Yeah, I want to dive a little deeper into the the vectors of Russian influence in the second half, when we talk about the local elections. Because I agree with you, Alexei. I would not put uh, Kolomoisky in the same category, for example, as, as Viktor Medvedchuk, who is basically an, an agent of the Kremlin in Ukraine. I wouldn't even Boy, put him in. The, I wouldn't put him in the category of a Renat Akhmetov, whose loyalties are ambiguous. I would say, but whose interests often, more often than not, overlap with those of Moscow. Kolomoisky is kind of a different animal here, but I want to dive into that in the second half. But I want to jump on something before we move into the second half. I want to jump Mm -hmm. into something that Melinda raised, and that is how will the incoming Biden administration change the dynamic? Last week on the podcast, I, I had longtime Biden foreign policy advisor, Michael Carpenter, on, and we talked a bit about Ukraine. I mean, we all know that the the president elect is um, not only very, very well informed on this part of the world and on Ukraine in particular, but he also cares very deeply about this part of the world. And so I want to quote from a Washington Post editorial this week that looked at what an incoming Biden administration, what kind of an impact it might have on Ukraine. Quoting from the Post, they write, once inaugurated, the Biden administration could take several steps to strengthen Mr. Zelensky's hand. One could be to prepare sanctions against the constitutional court judges who are complicit in tainted rulings. The Global Magnitsky Act provides for visa bans and asset freezes in such cases. A Biden Justice Department could also renew efforts to pursue criminal corruption cases against key Ukrainian oligarchs, including Dmitry Firtash and Ihor Kolomoysky, who have been instrumental in blocking reforms in promoting Russian interests in Ukraine. If President elect Biden when he becomes President Biden after the 20th of January at 12.01 p.m. Alexei, if President Biden follows through on these recommendations, I think very wise recommendations from the Washington Post editorial board here, how would that go over in Ukraine? I don't know. A few minutes to describe my general uh, understanding of all the situation. I think that do well, if, if the Biden administration came in with sanctions against these... They're constitution-
0: going to be opening champagne, Brian. This is what I want
2: to get elected. Yeah, I, 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 well, I think some Ukrainians will be opening champagne, but some won't. I don't think going to be opening champagne. I think that you're absolutely right.
1: And actually, in Ukraine, we think that Biden's win, Biden's election, is very good signal, and uh, it creates great opportunity, one more opportunity for Ukraine. I think oligarch model of political and economy system in Ukraine is main internal problem. Mm -hmm. But it's not only battle for us. The main battle is a battle against Russia. And Russia is trying to undermine not only Ukrainian state and not only Ukrainian institution. Russian is, is trying to undermine the whole democratic idea, you know? So I'm sure, absolutely, that Ukraine now is uh, the main battlegrounds of uh, democracy in the world. And that's why I'm sure that it will be very logic and it absolutely necessary for Mr. Biden's administration to have Ukraine uh, as uh, one of the main priorities. I am sure that the United States policy in Ukraine and on the region should be more offensive, first of all and for sure we need more sanctions maybe we should rethink the like the logical the sanctions to make them more efficient but i believe that we need a complex uh, delocalization plan for ukraine because the this oligarch model of ukrainian policy and ukrainian economy is a key problem is a source of corruption and it makes ukraine more weak fight with Russia, it's not a fight for Ukraine, it's a fight for democracy and for democracy in the whole region. Because Ukraine is a showcase for Putin, Ukraine is very important to be a loser, like his definition is failed state, yes, mm-hmm. he said. So it's against your interest to have a democracy. So we in Russia should have some special pass. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I believe that if Ukraine will be successful, If Ukraine will succeed in this fight against the oligarch, it will be a huge success, not only for Ukraine, it will be a huge success for all democracy in the world and would be a very good achievement for Mr. Biden's administration. So my main idea is we need a complex plan and it's not enough to have only sanctions. From one hand, we should have sanctions. From another hand, we should have some support package for a new generation of politicians, for minorities, uh, we need some uh, measures to fight uh, fake news and so on and so forth. So it, it should be a complex plan. It should be uh, one of the top priorities for Biden's administration. I, I would certainly
2: concur with that. Melinda, any last thoughts from you before we move into the second half?
0: Sure. I, I, I have a slightly different view. So I think the reformers in Ukraine are popping champagne because they realize they're finally going to have a voice in Washington. Biden knows and cares and knows the players. However, at at Bankova, I think it's good and bad. They're not drinking champagne. They're glad they're no longer going to be in the middle of our domestic politics. That's a very good thing. But they're also looking at a president and a team that knows Ukraine very well. They're not going to be able to pull the wool over our eyes. They understand what's going on here better than many of the specialists do. So in in that sense, I think there's going to be a lot of tough love, Brian, in the next four years. And I also think that there's going to be some good things that happen bureaucratically. And maybe those are worth mentioning. Uh, the coordination of sanctions is probably going to be moved back to state. And I think the Post is right. The U.S. government is going to go after Furtash and Kolomoisky. But they'll probably also go after Medvedchuk. So those are all good things. I think Alexei is right that uh, we should expect to see a pretty ambitious assistance package. But again, if Ukraine is not moving, there's no reason why we should keep giving them huge money. They have to progress. So I think there's going to be a carrot and stick in this administration. They're not just going to write blank checks. They will continue to support the reformers and the good guys. The United States isn't going to make its assistance on defense contingent, though. That's something that Ukraine can count on, even if the country continues to backslide. And there has been massive backsliding this year. And I think Biden will call them out over and over again.
2: No, I would agree with that. And it's and again, I also want to stress it's not just the president-elect that is very knowledgeable and cares very deeply about Ukrainian affairs. It's his entire foreign policy team it's secretary of state designate tony blinken who is incredibly well informed on ukraine and cares deeply about it it's michael carpenter it's jake sullivan it's that whole team that's going to be coming in to the national security council the state department the you know wherever everybody lands and we don't know all the appointments yet but you're going to have a team that's that's really well informed about ukraine and cares very deeply about it. Um, On that note, I'll shift gears in a few moments. We'll continue our discussion and look at Ukraine's recent local elections and what they reveal about the current political dynamics in the country, the struggle with the oligarchs, and the ongoing conflict with Russia. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UK McDowell Center for Global Studies and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from an undisclosed location is former Ukrainian Prime Minister Olexei Hanchanuk, the youngest person ever to serve in that office. And these days, Olexei is a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council. And joining us from Silver Spring, Maryland, is Melinda Herring, Deputy Director of the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center and a Senior Fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, the Power Vertical blog and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. And please do. i like to increase my followers.
1: это Навальный. Делаю Я с ужасно С новым годом вас. С новым веком.
2: If Ukraine's local elections this month are any indication, President Volodymyr Zelensky is in political trouble. His Servant of the People Party failed to win power in any regional capitals. There was also not great news for his predecessor and rival, Petro Poroshenko. His European Solidarity Party won just one major city, Rivnia, in western Ukraine. Likewise, former Prime Minister Yulia Tymoshenko's motherland party took just one city, Sumy, in northeastern Ukraine, and the pro-Russian opposition platform won only in Luhansk. Instead, the big winners in the election were independent local candidates affiliated with local parties and the so-called party of mayors, the Proposition Party. Writing for the Atlantic Council's Ukraine alert, senior non-resident fellow Brian Medford wrote the following, and I quote, the decentralization that began in 2014 has not only increased the powers and budgets of local governments, but it has also helped to democratize Ukrainian local governments. That may be bad in the short term for the major parliamentary parties, but it is good in the long term for citizens seeking local solutions to their problems. Alexei, what is your take on the local and regional elections, and what do they reveal? Because I see a lot of good news here, actually. I mean, I I know it doesn't look good for the president's party. I know it doesn't look good for Poroshenko's party. It doesn't look good for any national parties, quite frankly. But this is interesting because the decentralization law seems to have opened up the door to some serious grassroots democracy. The main outcome of the local elections uh, has shown that the
1: trust for the national politicians uh, and uh, actually Slovdolensky is slowly decreasing. Ukrainians uh, now tend to trust more to their local authorities. It's the people with whom they are, are neighbors. So they, they see the results, uh, real uh, visible results of the, their work uh, every day. And actually, this show that this chaos inside the president's party this uh, chaos inside a, l- a lot of uh, other nationals party and how prepared they were to the local elections. And so this a uh, lot of corruption, scandals, all these scenes create the situation when the legitimacy of local leaders, of uh, mayors uh, and some leaders of communities, some just local politicians, uh, new ones, become mayors, so and they won these uh, elections. And But it's only the one trend, and you're absolutely right that the winners, the main winners of these local elections uh, were uh, the local politicians because of uh, this uh, very low trust uh, to the national uh, political parties. The second very important uh, outcome is that the influence of pro-Russian powers, political powers uh, is raising. And Mm -hmm. not in the eastern part of Ukraine, but in the central part and even in some western uh, regions. uh,
2: If if I can interrupt just for a moment, are you talking about the opposition platform, which is connected to Medvedchuk, or are we talking about the opposition bloc, which is connected to Akhmetov, or both of them together? Both of them together, and uh, there is
1: one more uh, political party like Shari's party, Anatoly Shari's, uh, he's a blogger. Uh, and I believe, I'm sure that he's a Kremlin agent financed from uh, Russia, and he's a part of this uh, huge uh, Kremlin's uh, propaganda machine. He, he became a politician too, actually, as a result of this election. So these two trends show us that the danger uh, is raising too in Ukraine, and Russia will try to use these. A situation when people trust to some local ones, to some local people, and in a huge number of communities in uh, many regions, uh, the winners uh, are pr- with pro-Russian position. Uh, and it's very dangerous uh, because if you have mayor, for example, or a chief of some, uh, um, Radov, some uh, council uh, with a pro-Russian position, and you have a central government with a very low trust, it, okay. it's a great situation for all these, you know, in, in the circumstances of uh, Russian total Russian propaganda, in the circumstances uh, when uh, the influence of Russian media is raising, actually, because uh, they invest huge resources, absolutely unbelievable resources in uh, tools to influence uh, our population, our citizens. So, in this situation, the danger of possible conflicts in the region is uh, is very high and we should be aware of it and that's why the local elections show us the vulnerability of uh, ukraine's uh, state now because of uh, very low trust to the not only the government which is traditional uh, but for national political parties if you compare this uh, trust and support uh, with
2: some local, uh, colleagues, with some local. Uh, so Melinda, we seem to have a double edged sword here. I mean, on one hand I see this great victory for grassroots democracy, which, uh, you know, as somebody that deeply believes in grassroots democracy, it cheered my spirits. But as Alexei correctly points out here, this could turn into yet another vector of Russian influence. How do how do you see it?
0: I'm actually encouraged by the election results. Look, all the national parties really got their butts kicked really hard. It looks like if these results mean, you know, if, if we could take these results and extrapolate, it means Zelensky's only going to be a one term president. To me, this says that there's huge demand for something new. People are dissatisfied with the national parties. They trust local people that they know who get stuff done. And even uh, Kolomoisky dumped a ton of money into a bunch of races. And his political party didn't do very well, Brian. So I I, I have a lot of faith in the Ukrainian people. And I think that there's demand for something new. Uh, We saw that 73% of people got behind uh, Zelensky last year. So I I think the right uh, national reform-minded candidate who doesn't have oligarchic backing needs to jump into this space uh, and start building. It also speaks to, I think, how weak Zelensky's branches are across the country. Yeah, no, and that's surprising, given the mandate he won in the presidential election, which
2: wasn't that long ago, and the mandate he won in the subsequent parliamentary elections. Although, that said, this is something, again, we've seen this movie before in Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine does not treat its presidents very well, That the, no. the, the electorate is very skeptical. People come in with a lot of support, and that support quickly dissipates. I mean, this, I think, says something very positive about the Ukrainian Electorate. I, I don't want to see Ukrainian presidents with 90% approval ratings like mm-hmm. like you have in Russia. It speaks well of Ukrainian democracy, I think. Mm-hmm. And it speaks to the fact that every single Ukrainian election since 1994, since Leonid Kuchma defeated incumbent president Leonid Kravchuk, something I consider to be a revolution in the summer of 94, every single Ukrainian election has been competitive. And only one Ukrainian president has won re-election. So Zelensky's just getting the treatment all Ukrainian <laughs> presidents get. So I don't see anything anything remarkable about this. What does concern me and what I'm looking at in these local election results, as Alexei pointed out, is this grassroots democracy, which we all should applaud, a potential vector of Russian influence. And is it a potential vector of oligarchic influence? What I'm hearing from the two of you is that it is a possible vector of Russian influence, but not so much yet a vector of oligarchic influence, because you're seeing, uh, seeing oligarchic influence decrease in that. We are bumping up against the end. I want to give you each one chance to make a very brief concluding remarks before we wrap it up for this week. Alexei, why don't you go first? First of all, thank you for this great chance uh, to set my position. So.
1: I think that United States is a strategic partner for Ukraine. And all these events, the war with Russia in Ukraine, it's only the part of a biggest picture. And that's why for United States it's very important to support inside Ukraine the good guys who is trying to fight both wars against oligarchs and corruption, and at the same time against Russian propaganda uh, and the Kremlin's influence. And this is a fight for democracy. We are trying to save this very, very important achievement we already have. You mentioned that it's very good that we have a fair elections. So yes, Ukraine is a democracy, is a young democracy, but and it's a huge benefit we have in a very complicated, actually, circumstances, in a very complicated regions, so looking to our neighbors, most of them. So, and I believe that we should learn our lessons and not to come back to oligarchic model and not to come back to the place, to the, all these games with old-style politicians like Yatsenyuk, Yanuk Arashenko, Tymoshenko, and all these guys, because they already lost this, but they choose, to work with oligarchs one more time. And they will work with oligarchs in the future because it's a, yeah. they are a part of the model. And it was a mistake, I believe. This bet was a mistake after the revolution of dignity. And it was a bet of, first of all, of Ukrainian people, I know, but the second point, it was a bet of our international partners. And I believe we should learn this lesson and we shouldn't support all these corrupting politicians. The policy on Ukraine should be based on zero tolerance to corruption, to all these oligarch-based games, you know?
2: That's- yes, no, Ukraine is on the front lines of a global normative struggle. That's how I would put it. I, I call it the West Germany of our times, and it should be treated as such. We're bumping up against the end. Literally
0: one minute, Melinda, last word to you before we go home. Great, I think this last year, Brian, is- a painful reminder that progress is never permanent and if we let our eye off the ball things can really unravel so we really need to pay attention the Biden administration needs to pay attention to what's going on i think the biden needs to tell zelensky that we can't care more about Ukraine than you do. And he needs to be really tough. I think the US government needs to rethink, and I'm, I'm choosing this word purposefully, our stupid assistance programs in Ukraine. We're doing a lot of programs that don't make any difference. We need to put money into programs that will challenge the oligarchs. Alexei Hontruk has done a lot of thinking about this. I've done some thinking about it. But let's get real. We know that the oligarchs are the problem, they control the media. And until you break that vicious cycle, you're not going to see any real progress.
2: Here, here, And on that note, we shall wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas, Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. My name is Brian Whitmore, I've been your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining me from an undisclosed location has been former Ukrainian Prime Minister Oleksiy Cheruk, the youngest person ever to serve in that office. And these days, Olexi is a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council. Also joining us from Silver Spring, Maryland, has been Melinda Herring, Deputy Director of the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center and a Senior Fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Thank you to both of you for an enlightening, lively, and fascinating discussion. Thank you very much. And I'd also like to thank our production team, Lance is in the virtual control room, and he keeps the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion and Cecilia Wynn handles our all-important post-production duties, which make us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can and should follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. The Power Vertical Podcast will take a couple of weeks off for Christmas and New Year's, but we'll We'll be back in action in 2021 and until then as always i leave you with the ambient sound mix that has been prepared by our production team